Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is David Cinnamon. David is a business executive and entrepreneur, currently the founder and executive chairman of K2 Pure Solutions, which manufactures water purification and disinfection products using safe, environmentally sustainable technology. However, he is perhaps most well-known locally for being the former co-owner of our Grey Cup champion Toronto Argonauts from 2003 to 2010, including his own Grey Cup championship win in 2004. A serial entrepreneur and a serial philanthropist, David Cinnamon has made great contributions to both the world of business and our city of Toronto. Welcome, David, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are well, you? Well, I'm fine. Thank you for having me. And I'm in our uh, great, great cup winning uh, city, Toronto, this morning on U.S. Thanksgiving and uh, very happy to, to be with you. Great. And as you note, just days ago, the Argos won the 109th Great Cup 24-23 over the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. In fact, the championship parade will be taking place later today. Did you watch the game, David? I did. Um, I watched most of it. I, uh, I, I have to admit, I got pulled away for something I didn't uh, expect, but I did. And it was, uh, it was really a surprise. It was a great surprise. I didn't expect Toronto to win. I really felt uh, Winnipeg uh, is a dominating franchise over the last uh, three seasons, and and uh, but what a pleasant surprise that was! It was a fantastic, and I think it's kind of reawakened everyone to uh, not only how great the CFL is, but uh, what a, what a great finish the Argos had. So that was a great game. I want to ask you, if I may, about your family. How is everyone doing, and and who makes up the cinnamon household these oh, days? My family is great, thank you. I've got my uh, three children and my beautiful wife Stacy, and my my two boys Jesse and Josh, who who grew up with the Argos as we uh, as we owned the franchise with the Sokolowski family between you know two thousand and four and two thousand and ten, and and my daughter Jerry, um, who uh, was actually a junior cheerleader for the Argos. Early on, she's a lot younger, but she enjoyed it as well. So uh, we have uh, our families all in Toronto here, and uh, with our two dogs, we uh, we love our city. Fantastic! Well, that's great. Well, we are going to go all the way back and get the David Cinnamon story. You are, in fact, not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, quite uh, quite far from here, uh, distance-wise, but very close when it comes to the CFL and the culture of, uh, of football and the history of football. And uh, growing up there till the age of 17, my, my father actually owned the catering and, and concession business at uh, the old Clark Stadium in Edmonton, where the Eskimos so dominated the CFL with so many great cups and, and really began my love of, of football, let alone the CFL, working the stands, selling hot dogs up and down the aisles and <laughs> what felt like 20 below even in uh, in July, uh, but when it came to um, to playoff and Grey Cup time, really was 20 below. And I, and as I tell the story, I spent more time probably sitting on the warm thermos of hot dogs than selling any, and, and I was eating more than I was selling. But I was uh, I, I had the best seat in the house on the 50 yard line, um, sitting on a warm thermos. Nobody at Clark Stadium had a better seat than I. So I had an amazing childhood. I got to watch. You know, the Oilers, even in the WHA days and the early NHL days, winning cups and watching Wayne Gretzky. So sports became uh, a real part of my DNA uh, being in Edmonton and uh, an amazing childhood. But I got to Toronto quite early at 17 to play football at York University. So Edmonton uh, seems like a long time ago, but uh, it's still warm to my heart. Absolutely. Do you, re- do you remember what a hot dog and beer went for back then, David? <laughs> I, do, I actually do. It was 50 cents. And this was not just a hot dog. This thing was the size of like a, uh, a, a, a small missile. Like it was, it was <laughs> large with onions and loaded and it was 50 cents, and, which seemed like a lot at the time, but it was a, it was a, a meal for an entire family. So um, it was good. I, I managed to, uh, I was a little heavier in those days. So I managed to eat a few more than most families did during a game. But uh, 
uh, <laughs> and didn't have to pay. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. And as you mentioned, this was the start of kind of your business career, so to speak, working the concession stands for your father at Clark Stadium. What did you learn from your first business mentor, your father? Uh, I learned uh, a lot, hard work, especially as I mentioned, we were, uh, it was automatic. It was, it was second nature to get up early and, uh, and do work around the house if it wasn't shoveling the snow, but especially to show up at his concessions. May they had been local ski hills or local hockey arenas, um, and especially Edmonton Eskimo games, um, and get there and do the work. It was second nature. We didn't consider it uh, being asked of us to, uh, to do anything outside the ordinary. Um, they paid us uh, like everyone else, um, even though I didn't sell that many hot dogs, I still got paid. <laughs> Uh, but it was all about hard work and determination. And, uh, w- you know, my dad doesn't have a lazy bone in his body. Still at uh, at 95 today, he still works, still has his office, still has businesses. So that was ingrained in uh, in our culture and our approach to life right from the from the very beginning. He was an entrepreneur that they came out of uh, out of the war as a survivor uh, with, uh, you know, didn't have a penny uh, to his name and uh, and built up a very nice businesses in in Edmonton, Alberta. So it was uh, it was an amazing childhood, and I was very fortunate to be able to watch uh, a great success story like that and uh, and teach me lessons very early on. So David, as you mentioned, at the age of seventeen, you move over to Ontario, you Toronto, and you attend York University. You're playing football. You're also studying, but this wasn't enough for you. You kind of got going with your business career. You operated a convoy of pedicabs in Toronto. This was kind of starting the showing your entrepreneurial flair. Uh, how'd you get into that? And uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, adding on to my father's and watching his experiences, uh, to me, it was second nature to, to be in business or to be working while going to school at York and playing football. And I guess I had uh, a little bit of the entrepreneurial gene from from my father. And, and I had experienced um, going to Hawaii very often in the winters where Torontonians would go to Florida. In Edmonton, one of the closer spots was Hawaii. Um, and mm. there were these bicycle cabs on the streets of Honolulu and Waikiki taking tourists around and, um, and, and providing information on the island. And, and it was just, um, I, I thought it was unbelievable. You know, you, you could have uh, students driving these things and making earning extra money and and uh, and having tourists uh, ride along on a bicycle so long story short i uh, i investigated where i could have these things built the ones that were that were provided in hawaii were extremely expensive i remember at the time were uh, 6 7000 dollars a bike and and this is quite a while ago and i couldn't afford that and and then uh, researched and found that uh, during expo 67 uh, in montreal there was some very simple bicycle cabs that were built and used around the expo site. And so I researched, found the uh, manufacturer of those bikes, a small little bike uh, bike maintenance shop in Montreal, and, and uh, got him to uh, pull out some of the older bikes and rebuild some new ones and put a fleet together. I remember for $500 a bicycle, and uh, I, I, I bought 12 of them. Um, I don't even recall how I got the money. I probably saved some up from the few hot dogs that I sold. And, uh, and then I began to uh, lease these and rent these out to students on two shifts um, a day, seven days a week. And during the months of uh, June till Labor Day, uh, we went probably 18 hours a day. And the night shift was actually very lucrative for these students as they would take, they would take bar hoppers and uh, let alone tourists around the city and collect tremendous tips and we put radios on at the time so there was music and uh it, it was a very very lucrative business all cash at the time um but working uh you know 18 19 hours and really late nights and um but again you know learning and watching my father work uh, that hard made it very second nature and uh and made it a great experience a lot of fun and very lucrative well, and you certainly learn your customer service skills when you got to deal with all these uh, various types of customers. It's you, you were very ahead of your time, obviously. I guess they still exist in Toronto, but I can't even imagine trying to run a pedicab service with all the construction and chaos on the streets of Toronto today. 
but uh, I guess back then you just did you just it. did it, and uh, you're very right. And very lately, in the last uh, seven eight years, um, now you do not see them on the roads. It's very challenging with all the construction. Um, the streets, you know, of downtown Toronto were were uh, were not as dense in those days, and uh, a lot of things were just a lot easier to get done. And we actually got it permitted because at the time there was horse and buggy rides, so we took on. Um, oh, wow. we took on the same license um, path that they took and got every bicycle licensed. Uh, but today, like you mentioned, it's very challenging. But at the time, um, it was uh, they were well recognized in the streets of Toronto. It was a lot of fun. So in the early 90s, you transformed NHC Communications, Inc. It was a struggling stock quote paging service into a computer connectivity manufacturer ranked among Canada's fastest growing companies. So I guess you had moved into technology. Were you you were done school at this time? I assume um, I was, and uh, I very early quickly um, felt that I I needed to move into a uh, an industry um, that I felt was was going to be growing and uh, and very scalable. And at the time, I mean, nobody knew the word internet uh, as it developed um, in the late eighties. Um, so by eighty seven. Um, at the young age of 24, I was already the CEO of a public company launching Have Info, really as an online, as we would know it today, um, as uh, an online provider of financial data. We were the first to provide um, non-professional investment, the investment community with live stock quotes from all the major indices in North America. We were doing that um, on a, um, a a home um, phone computer that we were manufacturing overseas. You know, laptops didn't exist in those days. You did have, um, you know, you did have computers, big box computers on people's desks. Um, but we provided something that was a little more mobile, very, very, very slow, 300 baud. If, uh, if anyone out there remembers the uh, slow pace of that, that would be like <laughs> crawling to work on your hands and knees today versus <laughs> yeah. driving. But nonetheless, the information was coming through and at uh, a few hundred dollars a month versus the thousands of dollars a month that professionals were paying, um, it was very affordable for day traders at the time, amateur traders, um, mining industry, people that just wanted to follow their stocks. Um, and then the financial data uh, expanded to other data. And inevitably, we were very, very um, early stage Google type information platforms, but we really began our roots with the financial data because that was one that, that the, um, the community and the financial community was prepared to pay for. It was very valuable. And then that expanded to something called Stock Alert, where we um, partnered with National Paget, which at the time was a Bell Canada company, which is the largest paging company in Canada, again, before smartphones, before cellular phones. When, uh, you know, when, when dads waiting for their uh, pregnant wives to, to give birth and were, had their pagers on their, on their waist waiting for that buzz, well, we were providing stock quotes and stock alerts so that stockbrokers going for lunch and whatnot could get alerted during the day of, uh, of movements on particular uh, stocks so they could, you know, they could deal with it and be proactive as opposed to going for lunch and coming back to their desk an hour and a half later after a few cocktails and, and missing the market and probably missing opportunities. So one thing led to another, but yeah, we were in, I was in technology at, at very early age and uh, probably um, too soon, a little too early, um, but uh, in, inevitably was uh, a good success and, and a launching pad for my, my real entrepreneurial career. Well, that real entrepreneurial career kind of kicked in in 1995. I can't imagine a bigger transition than from the leading edge of information technology to bleach. In 1995, you acquired controlling interest in a single household cleaner manufacturing plant in Concord, Ontario called Kick Corporation, and you turned it from a near bankrupt bleach manufacturer into North America's largest manufacturer of branded and private label consumer and cleaning products. David, how'd you get involved with Kick Corporation? Well, you know, it, it's it's like I, I tell a lot of young entrepreneurs today. Um, it really doesn't matter what you're in. If you have passion, if you're going to be the best, if you're going to be the smartest person in the room in that category, you're going to have success. And it can be in high tech, which can be very 
competitive or it can be in products like uh, household consumer cleaning products like bleach um, that I made the transition to. And again, I didn't fall in love with tech or I didn't fall in love with bleach. I fell in love with the opportunity. And when my late father-in-law, after I sold my high tech business, asked me to go look at this small little facility in Concord, Ontario, that was um, really going bankrupt and the bank was calling its loan. And was there anything we could do with it? And I saw the um, North American opportunity from one, one little plant. I, I, I jumped at it um, and I bought very inexpensively because the business was, was, was really not worth very much. And I bought controlling stake in it. And along with my partner at the time, Howard Brody, in the high tech business, we went in and, um, and had a, um, a real focused strategy on consolidating what was at the time the Mon Paw category of household cleaners. May they be liquid bleach, may they be window cleaner, dish detergent, all the products in, in, in someone's household kitchen or bathrooms. All those products were being manufactured, filled. Bottles were being produced by a real mom pot category in North America. And we went ahead on a, uh, a long-term strategy of consolidation, uh, building some facilities, but mainly buying out competitors, smaller players, moving uh, two or three competitors into one larger plant, um, doing things um, like expanding facilities or, or, or creating synergies on purchasing, and inevitably um, took this little you know, business with negative EBITDA in Concord and uh, built a business that uh, even today is at about uh, three billion in, in sales and uh, and uh, last sold for uh, for three billion dollars US and and built it into a, uh, a North American network right today. That's pretty hard to penetrate and and one that I, uh, I finally sold and got out of in 2016. But uh, with regrets, I, I, I actually still wish I, I was involved in that in that original mm. business because uh, I have friends and family that are still there working, and it, uh, it, it's very close to my heart. Well, David, under your leadership, Kick expanded from 1 to 23 manufacturing facilities. You were employing 4,000 people, and sales climbed from $16 million to over $1.3 billion. In 2002, you led the company through one of the year's largest and most successful income fund public offerings on the Toronto Stock Exchange, forming the KCP Income Fund, and you took on the role of CEO, Chief Executive Officer. You kind of had two strategies there. You talked about one, which was consolidation. The other big strategy was moving into private label. How did that come about? Because we think of private label, President's Choice, uh, the uh, loaded cookie, uh, but we don't really think about it for bleach. So how did this private label strategy manifests no, itself. No, uh, good point. And in the late 90s, even the President's Choice chocolate chip cookie, which is the best-selling cookie in Canada, um, being that it's only sold at Loblaw's private label, didn't really exist um, throughout the United States. You'd be surprised how late private label in a high-level fashion like President's Choice developed in the U.S. And it really was in the late 90s that Walmart U.S., hired Loblaws to come into the United States and help them develop a nationwide private label program, which they inevitably called Sam's Choice, Sam Walton being the founder of Walmart, and President's Choice um, really was Dave Nickel, who was the president uh, and a very good friend of my late father-in-law and myself. Um, and being that Dave Nickel developed it, Sam Walton wanted Dave Nickel to help. And that's really what opened the door for us to help educate American retailers from everything we understood here in Canada. Little did we know, Canada was um, a leader in private label products, in premium private label, not a private label store brand that was only competitive in price, that was a yellow and black label that was very generic, but creating something premium, something that the actual quality of the product was comparable to the national brand, not just a better price. So when we came into the Walmarts of the world in the US, we brought them products like bleach, like window cleaner, like laundry detergent, like dish detergent, not just as a benefit on price, but gave them the national brand equivalent. And once you can provide a consumer with a national brand equivalent with the store banner name on it that they trust because they go there and save them money, well, then you've got a winning formula.
And we took private label products like bleach and cleaning products in the United States that typically had a single digit market share because they were only sold based on price. We took that to over 40% market share in a few years, educating the consumer, why don't you save money? And you're getting the same national brand equivalency that you were paying for anyways. Same success in Canada and that they did in the United States. I don't think Loblaws ever expected Walmart and the likes to come into Canada and be a competitive retailer at that time. So they took <laughs> yeah. on the, uh, the the economic short-term economic gain and being hired to, to provide the expertise. But in the long run, uh, the Walmarts and Targets of the world that uh, in the United States have come into this country and, and have, have used uh, the success of Loblaws against them. But we, we were really... Um, fortunate to be able to learn from the likes of Jerry Penser at Cot and Dave Nickel at Loblaws and be experts in our field. And when we went to the United States, they relied on us to be experts. So as we consolidated the market, we also upgraded the products to national brand equivalency and created a real formidable competitor to the national brands that the retailers needed because a lot of these iconic products like Coca-Cola, Clorox, tied. They're all sold at a loss because they're so dominant with leverage at the retailer base. We provided leverage for the retailer. So we were really a partner with them. And that really just um, um, sped up our, our growth and our success story because the retailer wanted to see us be successful as opposed to the national brand that they were selling at a loss. Well, you certainly did have success, David, because five years after going public in 2007, you led the sale of KCP slash Kick to New York-based Caxton Iceman for $804 million. With this success came accolades. In 2001, you were recognized as one of Canada's top 40 under 40 by the Globe and Mail's Report on Business Magazine. And in 2002, you were awarded the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for the Canadian Manufacturing Sector. Meanwhile, if you weren't busy enough with everything else going on, you decided this is a good time to buy a football team. So in late 2003, along with your business partner, Howard Sosgalowski, you became the savior of the CFL's Toronto Argonauts by buying them out of bankruptcy from the Canadian Football League for $2 million. Let's take a quick sidebar here. Howard Sosgalowski is a property developer, the current founder and CEO of Metropia. Please share the story of how you decided to co-own the Argos because I assumed you were lifelong buddies with Howard, or at least business partners, but apparently neither was true. Neither was true. Uh, it feels like we've been lifelong brothers um, well before the CFL, but we only did meet because of the Toronto Argonauts. And as I had my head down, um, building kick and, and really focused on, uh, on the industry and categories I was in, um, I always had the peripheral vision on, uh, on sports, because I grew up, as I mentioned, um, so committed to sports in Edmonton. And CFL was a passion, a burning passion in my heart as I grew up with it. So as I was watching peripherally at the failure of the Toronto Argonauts um, on a financial basis and really on crowds and stadiums and the likes, um, and, uh, and it came down to a, uh, a newscast I was listening to and the discussion of a possible bankruptcy again with the Toronto Argonauts. And I'm thinking, how is this even possible? You know, growing up at Edmonton, you, the Edmonton Eskimos would, would you know, is, it would be the most solid uh, business, let alone sports team that, that I had ever known. And how can this happen in Toronto? And, and I really then began um, to get interested and began to think about how could I help or how could I be successful? How could I be involved? And the first thing that I believed was needed, um, which inevitably um, I was not successful with, was a new stadium. I, I wasn't a big believer um, in the Sky Dome, you know, that came, uh, that we inherited, the Toronto Argonauts inherited, leaving Exhibition Stadium. Um, I was a big believer in smaller, more intimate uh, stadiums, outdoor stadiums, something that reflected the Canadian game a little more, a little closer. Uh, the Sky Dome was, a, you know, very committed to the Blue Jays, and rightfully so. It was built around the Blue Jays. The stands are built around the Blue Jays. The type of field was built around the Blue Jays. So I personally, as a huge CFL fan, wasn't that interested in going to the Sky Dome as much as I, 
uh, love the CFL and 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 the game of, of football. So my first initiative was to build a stadium. And the first place I looked at was my alma mater at York. I really believed that um, the Toronto Argonauts, it was hard to be um, looked upon or, or to reflect the economic levels of, of, of an Argo demographic in downtown Toronto, very expensive place. And I felt York and, and that region of, of Toronto was a growing area and would eventually get subway, like transit, public transit, like they're getting today. Ho, ho, ho. The holidays are here at Henderson Brewing Company. Sign up for a subscription of Unique Beers, where each month you will get our current small batch beer release, plus three other tap room only beers mailed anywhere in Canada. Available in four, six, or 12-month subscriptions, these packs make a great gift for any beer lover, including, hint, hint, yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. Now, David, news that the Argonauts were owned by Toronto inhabitants was welcomed by fans of the team, as you and Howard immediately had a positive impact. You doubled season ticket sales to 7,000, tripled corporate sponsorships, and increased average attendance from 14,000 to 22,000 fans per game. The icing on the cake, winning a little thing called the Grey Cup in 2004, which we are going to dive into more deeply in a moment, you'd apparently done the near impossible, making Canadian professional football work in Toronto. But did you really? Because on the financial side, the team was still losing money. Was the stadium the issue? And what are your comments on kind of the financial viability of the Toronto Argonauts at that time? Yeah, you know, the biggest regret with the Toronto Argonauts was not building the, the dream smaller outdoor venue that we had planned to do. Two, uh, two actual ribbon cuttings, one at York University, one at Varsity Stadium in partnership with MLSE. Um, both either would have been today extremely viable, obviously Varsity Stadium on Bloor Street, which inevitably got built by University of Toronto uh, even though they, um, you know, they decided uh, not to move forward with it at the, uh, I guess, past the eleventh hour, <laughs> we were already launched. Um, that would have um, changed not only our, you know, economic status as a as a as a sports franchise in the city at that time, but I think the longevity and the viability uh, of the Argos in this city. Um, Varsity was a special project. Um, Larry Tannenbaum was championing that on the MLSC side. Um, he was very passionate about it. We understood the strength of it. He was passionate because he was going to uh, put in um, the Toronto Maple Leaf minor league team was going to was going to play in a, in a hockey arena that was adjoining that stadium. Um, it was just really going to be part of the fabric of Toronto. It should have happened. We had terrible timing where the, the president of University of Toronto at the time, uh, who was championing the project very much behind it, um, took, a, took a job in, in California and really just left the University of Toronto, um, blindsided them. Um, the interim uh, president, uh, uh, a, a Supreme Court judge, Frank Iacobucci, um, came in and immediately um, killed the uh, project. We still to this day don't know why. Um, mm. And uh, we ended up staying, you know, at the Sky Dome at the time. And though we did make it um, materially more successful, as you mentioned, with the amount of fans and sponsorship and revenue, and yes, winning help, but I think Keith Pelly as our CEO did a world class job of of, uh, of, of improving the experience, the fan experience from all levels. We used to call it from car to seat. We wanted fans to experience um, the Argos and, and the CFL right when they parked, hear music, um, you know, be very welcomed into the stadium, um, and then during the game and the great entertainment, and then hopefully put a fantastic team on the field, which we did for all the years, most of the years we owned it, though we only won one Grey Cup, and Keith Pelly was really the the one responsible for all that success but having our own intimate varsity stadium or even york stadium um i think is uh is is would have uh, launched 
uh, the Toronto Argonauts to a whole other level. And and because the the lack of success that Howard and I had um, executing that, um, we feel very we feel very bad for the city of Toronto that we didn't accomplish that. That was something we should have gotten done. We had all the capital and funding requirements from levels of government and ourselves committed. Um, we literally had a, uh, a a shovel in the ground ceremony. So um, it's, a, it's a some of it's still a mystery. All these years later, uh, a lot of it's still a disappointment. All these years later, but nonetheless, we were still committed and uh, and moved ahead with the stadium that we had and uh, and tried our best to uh, to improve the the financial state of the Toronto Argonauts. Well, since that time, of course, everyone's pointed to the great success of in Montreal moving that team to the McGill Stadium, and it was thought that by moving the Argonauts to BMO Field, that would be the big change. But it really hasn't been the big change. Now with this Grey Cup championship, David, what do you see for the Argonauts' role in the CFL or the greater CFL? Well, I'm ve- I'm very sad because you you made a great point here. You they've moved to BMO Field since. Um, and have yet to see the uh, really the attendance yet uh, monetary success um, that MLSC deserves or, or any of the previous owners deserved. Um, and um, I fear that the CFL might have lost its its place and its timing um, versus other global sports franchises and and, and global sports being that there really are no borders today and and with the access to information and 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 live sports from all over the world at 24 hours a day on may it be on your on your television or your or your smartphone um it's put the argos in a different competitive field than when we owned it back in the early 2000s and you've got an nfl that has really improved uh, their game and the experience as a fan, uh, where we used to call, you know, Bob McCown used to call it the no fun league. It's it's not the case anymore. You've got tremendous excitement. You've got more passing. Um, and you've got NBA here and, and you've got Major League Baseball and you've you've got major soccer and you've got the Argos. And it's a very competitive um, city to be in sports. So. I fear that um, the CFL missed a, a big opportunity, and the Toronto Argonauts missed a big opportunity, and 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 it 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 might be a challenge if there's not a better way to combine um, the North American football experience, either with the NFL, um, keeping part of the Canadian game, some hybrid. You know, I'm saying things that don't come from the heart. You know, they come more from my brain. Because from the heart, I'd like I'd like to keep the keep the tradition of the CFL and the Canadian football and all its rules and and playing in the cold and everything about it to to me as a Canadian is is phenomenal. But you have to look at the business side and uh, inevitably, um, you know, owners like us, even MLSC, you you know, you, you you get tired of investing capital after capital after capital without seeing the returns, and you have to make a change. And I'm just uh, wondering how soon and when the CFL will need to to pivot and and make a change of some kind to catch up to the rest of the global stage of of sports and uh, and soccer did it in North America and bringing over world class players you know that we uh, you know that are, are name brand players from from the European leagues and and whatnot really you know vaulted. Um, North American soccer to a, to another level and and things like that and uh, you know we tried with Ricky Williams and and we saw you know moments in time of success with with fans that could recognize iconic players from the U.S. coming over here and and it happened in the CFL's history and and I just believe in my on, on the business side of my of my heart that um, something else is needed for the CFL to keep up and 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 even hopefully ever take a leadership role in this city in sports. Well, it's a great point, the difference between using your brain and using your heart with respect to the CFL. David, I don't want to put you on the spot, but the NFL, are we going to get a team in Toronto? Should we get a team in Toronto? Well, um, I think, are we inevitably, yes. I don't think it's as soon as, as 
people would some people would like or it should have happened already. Um, and I really believe that it needs to be done creatively and incorporate the CFL. And there's a way to do it. And if it's done that way, then the sooner the NFL comes here, the better, because the NFL is here already. We just don't necessarily on Sunday afternoon drive to a stadium and watch them. But we we can't ignore the fact that they are here. Um, my kids that sit here every Sunday with 10 of their friends watching football, um, the NFL is here. It's in their uh, DNA already, and they bet on it, and they play video games around it. So um, if you can't beat them, kind of join them. And we've got to find a creative solution so that we don't eliminate our CFL tradition, but we incorporate it and we pivot into a more of a, of a North American approach. And we, we need to do that sooner or later, unless the MLSCs of the world are going to continue to fund uh, and invest in a league that is it's very challenging to make money. Well, when you talk about your end of your reign in February 2010, you sold the team to the late David Braley, who had originally loaned you some of the money required to purchase the Argos from the Canadian Football League. As a coda to your whole experience, I had two questions. Are you still friends with your co-owner, Howard? And number two, did you ever figure out what a rouge was? <laughs> well, yes. Um, Howard Sokolowski is, is more than a friend. We're like brothers. We're family. Um, the business that we were in in the Toronto Argonauts. Um, yeah, we were great fans and we loved the game, but the business was very challenging. And if you can get along and uh, still talk to your and, and socialize with your partner after uh, being in a, in, in a business that loses a lot of money every year, um, then you're closer than partners and you're closer than friends. You're more like like brothers. So yes, we are still partners in uh, in real estate and in um, some restaurants in the city, and we see each other all the time. And and you know probably the greatest thing that ever came out of the Argonauts Argonauts for me was Howard Sokolowski and and Keith Pelly, um, because those two are lifelong um, family members, um, and uh, and and I loved you know going to war with them, trying to improve the Toronto Argonauts and, and the CFL exposure in Toronto. And, and the Rouge? <laughs> the Rouge. I tell you, that was fun. That, uh, you know, you'd go to the U.S. and uh, it was it was hard to explain to to our American friends really what that was. So, uh, yeah, I finally kind of figured that out. But, um, you know, that may be one that might be one thing we, we may have to give up in the near future if we want our American friends to uh, to watch our game. David, let's talk about your experience on the field. Let's go to that actual Grey Cup. This was the Damon Allen quarterbacked pinball Clemens coach team that won the 92nd Grey Cup in 2004 at Frank Clair Stadium in Ottawa in front of 51,000 people. The Toronto Argonauts defeated the BC Lions 27-19. to Your 41-year-old quarterback Damon Allen was named the game's most valuable player for the third time in his career. Michael Pinball Clemens, a hero, an absolute legend in Toronto as a player, Returned for a Grey Cup win as a coach. By the way, for those counting, Pinball now has seven Grey Cups, three times as an Argonaut player, two as an executive, one as a coach, and now one as a general manager. Before we get to your experiences, David, with the Grey Cup, is Pinball Clemens really the nicest person on earth? Hey, well, first of all, Andrew, you just gave me goosebumps as you described um, that year and the Grey Cup year. And, and Pinball, yeah, I mean, this is is one of the most special um, human beings you will ever meet. Um, I mean, nobody can motivate uh, a, a team, a group of, of people, of warriors like like Pinball. That was Pinball's team. That was Pinball's Grey Cup. I mean, Damon Allen was over the top, and, and we had a scouting crew that brought us tremendous talent and tremendous players. But um, we're all human beings at the end of the day, and Pinball... Um, you know, we all, even as owners, Howard and I, we wanted to go through a wall for pinball. And so did the players. There was no stopping these players for pinball. And Damon Allen just found another gear in that game. And uh, and we had unbelievable receivers in, in Baker and Soward and uh, and, uh, and 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 John Avery at running back. And it was just electric 
what that did for the city and that game itself, that crowd there in Ottawa. I was on the field. I never believed in a million years that I would be involved or touch um, or get that close to a great cup. Um, that night is engraved in my memory every, almost every play, um, l- let alone the entire weekend with my family. Uh, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life and a proud, proud moment as a Canadian um, to have, have had a small piece in helping this city be very proud of a great cup where uh, in 2004 um, was really important. Like today, as, a, as I'm talking to you and looking over at, at the television and at the huge crowd at the Argo rally, we had a massive parade a few days later that, um, you know, reminded me of, of today's uh, uh, NBA or Major League Baseball type parades. We had huge crowds coming out and I see that coming out again today and it's, uh, it really uh, puts a smile on my face because that's what we had in 2004. This city of Toronto embraced our victory. They embraced the Argos and it was all, it was all led by Pinball Clemens. Well, you got to share a good pinball story with me, David. What's what comes to mind? I'm sure you got lots of stories, but share one that comes to mind when you think of pinball. Wow! First of all, when uh, when you approach pinball, um, you better um, be uh, structurally and physically prepared <laughs> to not only shake his hand, but to get a hug that uh, might jar a few joints and muscles loose. <laughs> And I didn't know this at the very beginning. Pinball to me was, uh, you know, was like a superhero that you would read about or watch um, growing up. And then all of a sudden um, you're in a room with him. And, and I remember just the first time ever meeting him and, and he, he starts to approach you. And he's obviously not a very large individual, um, though his heart and his brain are larger than most humans. His physical stature is not. But the next thing you know, a tsunami, a physical force, hits your body, starts with a handshake, ends with a hug, your, 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 your feet are dangling six inches in the air, you're dancing in, in, a, in a horror all of a sudden with this emotional and excitement, and this just, this just uh, like complete um, human um, experience of, of, of energy just hits you. And you say, what just happened? That was an outer body experience. And then even when you expected it every time you saw pinball, it was still an outer body experience. And the guy kept an energy level and a glass half full spirit um, within him at all times. I don't know if he went home, closed the door, you know, and curled up in a ball and ever had issues. We'll never know because out in 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 the social light of day and with other human beings this man was all positive all energy and he drove the argo success and even in all our years that we didn't win the great cup we went to the eastern final and all but one year did we have a very successful season and that was all driven by him and when he left the head coaching duties behind the bench we never really did fill that position very well or ever to his ability and we lost a lot of steps because again his force of nature um you know it it demands but you're you're willing to to go through a wall for that leader so every time i met him was a new experience and he just lifted your day and lifted your spirits up no matter no matter what you felt like that day well, like you say, there, first of all, you can't find a single person to say a bad word about the guy. And we all need someone in our lives who can hug beyond their uh, physical stature. Yes, I can't punch imagine, above their weight. I can't imagine what COVID did for him for two years not being able to hug. I feel bad, but I'm sure he's caught up on two years worth of hugs. <laughs> he's making up for it. David, trivia from the 2004 Grey Cup. Who sang the national anthem and who was the halftime show? Do you remember? Um, I can tell you. Oh, geez. Well, halftime show, I wouldn't know because I was in the locker room and just like glued to pinball speech. And as it was reported many times after, 
Damon Allen speech and and the emotion that went through the room and it was incredible. So I, I I'm actually stumped on both because again I was so in awe with what was going on. Um, I missed those details. So fill me in. Who did sing for it? the record? <laughs> for the record, David, the national anthem was sung by Keisha Shante, who went on to a big recording career, and the halftime show was performed by. The tragically hip. Thou, I remember. You're right, and I remember. <laughs> you can't get more Canadian than the that. The greatest show I never saw because I <laughs> the missed the show. entire thing. But I was so happy to be in the locker room with the players. I would be remiss if we didn't close off our Argo discussion. He wasn't part of the Great Cup team, but Ricky Williams, the Ricky Williams experience. What do you uh, have to say? Uh, to me, he's a fascinating guy. I think he was ahead of his time, and at the time, you weren't allowed to smoke marijuana it caused him to be you know ban- banished from the nfl today he's kind of on the leading edge of cbd being used for you know injury treatment as an alternative what was your experience with ricky williams no andrew you've described it so accurately um not only ahead of his time with um with cannabis which he needed for other you know for social disorders and shyness and anxiety anxiety you know, he wasn't a partier. Or, you know, he, he, he was the most serious, dedicated athlete and the most, really the most intelligent athlete that I had ever met. Um, he was so well-read. Um, he was such a nice human being. Uh, he just, um, he wanted to deal with his issues his way. And when the NFL and, um, you know, didn't understand that, which, they, you know, they better understand today, like the rest of society at the time, you know, he walked away from all of that. He knew what he had to do to please the NFL and to continue to make, you know, five, ten million dollars a year. But he wasn't prepared to or wasn't able to. And I give him um, a lot of credit for that. And when the CFL opened their arms to him and allowed him not only to get back into the sport that he loved, but it relaunched his career. If you recall, he went back to the NFL with a lucrative contract and we put him back in that. And, and, and now in society, he's considered a leader as he's coaching in Texas and he's, and he's a part of a cannabis company that um, people understand now what he was doing at the time. He's better understood. My experience with Ricky Williams was phenomenal. I loved the man. I was so impressed with his thought process and his humanity and how he dealt with everyone. He was the most just generous and loving athlete, natural athlete, didn't really lift weights, was really into yoga, which was ahead of its time as well. When he would describe to his his fellow players in, you know, in 2005 that, you know, he was going to not go to the gym, he was going to go do yoga, you know, he was somewhat laughed at and now he's way ahead of his time as mobility and 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 stretching and yoga are are, are part of a fitness regime um he, you know this this individual was uh, a great athlete but a really great human being and i'm just so blessed to have had that experience and once in a while i i go back and at least it was you know it was captured on espn's 30 for 30 so um i get to once in a while go back and recall um a, how poorly I dressed at the time, but B, how impressive uh, and 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 really how great an experience it was to to sign such a you know world class athlete like Ricky Williams. That's fantastic. Well, David, I want to switch gears here, and I want you've already alluded to this gentleman a few times, and I would like to talk about your father-in-law, the late Jerry Penser. He was an entrepreneurial titan, the founder of soft drink manufacturer Cot Corporation. You, David, currently sit on the board of the Jerry and Nancy Penser Brain Trust at Princess Margaret Hospital. And uh, before you talk too much about him, I want to let you know, this will be the mind blow for you, is that I worked for Mr. Penser. I shared a cubicle wall with your sister-in-law, Holly, in the mid-90s. And uh, I had such a great experience being a cot. He was such a titan of business. In your dining room, you have an interesting piece of furniture. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, wow. First of all, Andrew, you floored me with that bit of trivia. Um, we're there. <laughs> um, um, so my late father-in-law, Jerry Penser, most people, you know, envision that knew him, envisions him as, you know, he he, he, he looked a little older than, than he was. And, 
and people are surprised when I tell them that he died at 52 years of age. Um, he was uh, by far the, the most guiding entrepreneurial light um, that I've ever had in the really five to six short years um, that I knew him, um, that he was alive. Um, he inspired me um, to build Kick. He allowed me the opportunity to build Kick. Um, he was um, the most insightful, fun-loving, generous, um, intelligent human being uh, that I have ever known. Um, he became my best friend in those short six years. Um, I idolized uh, his entrepreneurial um, achievements. Um, and uh, and the, when you go back to the Argos, and, the, and the, really the, 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 the most sad part about Toronto Argo, Argonaut experience was Jerry Penser not being there to see it because he would have loved it. He actually tried to buy the uh, Toronto Blue Jays at one time um, when the Blue Jays were struggling financially. Um, he loved sports, but he would have loved watching Howard and I um, try to reformulate the Toronto Argonaut um, uh, success. And, and he, he just sadly missed. And the table that I have that you've mentioned um, is, uh, is really a formula that I, I live my life on now that he taught me that uh, is H. It's a, it's a round table that uh, it has in the engravement in big letters of H equals R over E and uh, stands for happiness equals reality um, over expectations. And his whole mantra in life was to try to balance that formula. Because if that formula isn't balanced and your expectations are way higher than reality, well then happiness is a negative and, and then you end up not being happy. So uh, we all strive to be happy. I think that's all everybody strives for, um, for our, our families and ourselves. And it all is based on, on, on that formula. So I, I get to see that table every day. And it reminds me uh, not only of, uh, of the late Jerry Penser, but of how many things he taught me, um, just like that formula. Well, we had, there were great times when he was running caught in the 90s. Uh, Dave Nichol was in this kind of orbit. Richard Branson had come into the orbit. And it was just such an exciting time. And he was such an exciting guy. And uh, I had uh, great interactions with him. And, and my quick Mr. Penser story is that I got called down to his office from my cubicle that I was, as I said, sharing the wall with Holly. And I got all excited. I was sure Mr. Penser would want to hear all my thoughts on the private label and our strategies going in the U.S. So I straightened up my tie. I got all my papers together and I ran over to his office. And uh, his secretary put some keys in my hand and said, Applebaum, uh, go fill up Mr. Penser's car. And I was obviously disappointed. I thought I'd be given a better assignment. But when I went down to the parking garage at the Queensgate Terminal building, which is where the office was, I was very pleased to see that the car he'd asked me to fill up was his Ferrari. And uh, I had an amazing experience uh, filling up Mr. Penster's Ferrari and driving around Toronto for the afternoon. Funny. So that was my big interaction. Funny. That is a great, that's a great story. Well, he, uh, listen, he, he did have his, his way about him and, and sometimes... Uh, he was very eccentric that way, um, but he was a tremendous mentor and tremendous friend. David, as we come to the end, and I really appreciate your time, I do want to ask, what is your advice? And you must get asked this all the time. What is your advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I, I try to simplify things in, in life and not make them too complicated. And I really believe that if you can... Uh, if, if success is, is an ambition that you want, and success can be defined many ways, with, if monetary is a way or, or uh, you know, adding value and, and, and being relevant, um, I really believe you've got to be the smartest person in the room in the area and field that you are in. And obviously, you're striving to be the smartest because it's not necessarily that easy on a global scale to be the smartest. But if you feel like you can... Um, be the smartest person and be a leader in that room within the business category that you've decided to go into, I believe you're unstoppable. If you go into industries and categories and businesses that you can't achieve that level, 
then I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say you're, you're gonna have a very challenging time being successful. So pick your spots, pick your categories, look yourself in the mirror and decide, where do I belong in the pecking order? Am I number one or am I number three? Nothing wrong with it. And can I be in a category of electric cars or high tech against some of the smartest people in the world or do I gotta find my niche within other industries and other categories that maybe I can be that smartest person? then that will lead to success if success is what you're achieving. And I like to simplify to that. And that's sort of my, my message when, that I start with um, when, I'm, when, I, when I'm dealing with young entrepreneurs, which I love to do all the time. Another message that you have is interesting. Sweat the details. We've always been told, don't sweat the small stuff. But David Cinnamon says, sweat the details. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean in business. You know, sweating the small stuff in life, yeah, don't listen to the noise because life throws so much noise at you. But in your business, in your specific platform, the details matter. Customers and the way they feel matter. And I think when you're an expert, like I said, in your business and you understand the details, then you're unstoppable. And I used to worry about, you know, how does the cap fit on a bottle? How does a bottle open? How does a consumer who might not be as you know, is physically able to open up a bottle of detergent versus a younger generation. Can they open it? Is it easy? Uh, is it going to spill? Does it smell nice? Is the bottle easy to handle? Is the box easy to carry for the people in the warehouse? I think details matter in whatever business and category you're in. And you do need to sweat the details. When it comes to life and all the noise, once you leave your office, yeah, you got to blow some of that stuff off because, boy, that comes in like a storm. But in business, every detail matters. Very well said. Well, we want to know what you're working on for the remainder of this year and beyond at K2 Pure Solutions. And where can we best follow you and what you're working on at K2 Pure Solutions? Yeah, K2, I'm a very proud founder and majority shareholder of a, of a, of a, a very green and environmentally uh, safe technology um, that is cleaning uh, all the water um, really right now in the entire west coast of North America, all the way from British Columbia down to Mexico. Um, we've developed and created technology there that uh, inevitably now is, is supplying uh, all the water treatment for uh, approximately 60 million uh, North Americans along the west coast. We're doing that um, without these jurisdictions having to bring in very dangerous chemicals, mainly coming in from the Gulf of the United States, because that's where they're produced, coming in by rail car, um, typically chlorine gas, which is deadly, especially if it's derailed, um, which has happened many times in North America. Our technology eliminated that. And with the success of what we've done on the West Coast, um, we're going to scale that right across North America with our ambition to eliminate all the dangerous chemicals that water treatment has typically needed that travel by rail, 95% of which coming from the Gulf, um, traveling all the way across North America to, you know, well over uh, probably close to 400 million people. So we've started that. We're doing that very successfully. Um, it's very exciting. I pour my heart and soul into that and I work at that all day, every day. And I've got an amazing team there in California. I travel back and forth all the time. I spend the entire winter there now so I can be closer to my organization. And it's something near and dear, but it's also a business I completely understand coming out of Kick, I understood how chemicals traveled across North America. And this, um, this business really stemmed out of that to provide a safer, smarter, um, um, greener way to clean our drinking and our wastewater than we've been accustomed to. And I'm going to change the face of North America and the way we, we clean our water to make uh, all North Americans uh, much safer. Another exciting project. There is no slowing down, David Cinnamon. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate hearing about all the stories from your career. Andrew, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Great. My pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. On behalf of David Cinnamon, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.
Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.